Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Today's Monday, July 27, 2020, coming up on Roland Martin on the filter. Congressman John Lewis returns to Washington, D.C. as his body right now is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, the first African-American member of Congress to do so. We will show you what took place earlier at the ceremony that took place at the U.S. Capitol. In addition, we'll hear from folks who knew him well, including SNCC, fellow SNCC worker Charles Cobb, also his college roommate Bernard Lafayette, Ambassador Andrew Young, and also the Reverend James Lawson, who led the Nashville movement. Folks, also, uh, it is a Fit Live Win Monday. We have some health and fitness tips for a man who lost 130 pounds, and he says he can help you lose weight as well. Plus, I'm looking forward to this one hour with anti-racist activist Jane Elliott. Wonder what she's got to say about Donald Trump saying he wasn't going to pay any respects to Congressman John Lewis. Folks, it is time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from 
This, folks, is a live look. The U.S. Capitol Rotunda, where Congressman John Lewis, uh, he is lying uh, in state in the Capitol. The first African-American ever, African-American member of Congress to ever lie in the Rotunda. He's the second African-American. Rosa Parks also lied in state. Remember Congressman Elijah Cummings, uh, he was lying in state in the U.S. Capitol, but that took place in Statuary Hall, not in the Rotunda. Uh, the view, public viewing started around uh, 6 p.m., so about four minutes ago. Uh, that's when it started. And so, uh, as you see, uh, there have been a number of people, uh, members of Congress, uh, who have been coming through. We see right there, uh, we see right there uh, some members of Congress uh, and others uh, who, have been, uh, who have been there. And so it has been quite uh, a show there, uh, folks, uh, as uh, people have been... Uh, paying their respects to one of the most iconic figures in American history, uh, civil rights icon, a longtime 17-term member of Congress uh, who passed away uh, Friday before last uh, in Atlanta. Uh, there had been a, of course, his body was flown uh, into Thurgood Marshall BWI uh, Airport, was driven to uh, Washington, D.C. And what happened was, it was quite interesting, the, the procession went through went through the nation's capital. They first stopped by the MLK Memorial, uh, paying respects to a very dear friend uh, of Congressman John Lewis. That is the memorial for Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Then the procession uh, went past the Lincoln Memorial, made its way past the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And then before coming to the U.S. Capitol, they made, made their way down Black Lives Matter uh, Plaza right here in Washington, D.C., this right across the street my office is here. You see the video here. This is when uh, the hearse uh, came there. They were, be, they were greeted by uh, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and other D.C. officials. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was such a solemn occasion. Uh, you had the entire caravan there, and there was an audio being played from that caravan uh, of Georgia on my mind, uh, as well as Amazing Grace. Uh, so many people. Uh, celebrating the life and legacy of uh, Congressman John Lewis. This has been taking place all weekend. Things began in Troy, Alabama on Saturday, uh, where his body uh, lied in state there. There was a ceremony there. Then, of course, uh, his body was moved to the state capital of Alabama. There was a, it was a memorial a vigil that took place last night. Uh, then, of course, his body was flown to Washington, D.C. Uh, the public viewing takes place from 6 to 10 p.m. tonight. His body will lie in state all day tomorrow. The public will be allowed to attend. It is not going to be in the rotunda. It will not be in the rotunda. It actually will be uh, in the east lobby of the U.S. Capitol because of coronavirus concerns. This is earlier as his body was being brought into the U.S. Capitol. Uh, you see eight, seven service members. One of those service members, a member of the Navy, uh, actually collapsed outside, overcome uh, by uh, heat exha exhaustion. He was able to walk off on his own power. Seating was limited because of coronavirus. You see how uh, they are spread out. Uh, and so it was a limited number of members of the United States Senate and uh, the United States House. A number of members of the Congressional Black Caucus were there along with the family of Congressman uh, John Lewis. Among the folks who spoke at the program that took place uh, earlier today was his longtime friend, Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. God grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking as he did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Joining us right now is someone uh, who uh, knew Congressman John Lewis very well. He is an icon himself. He is one of the founders of the Nashville movement, uh, one of our greatest leaders, Reverend uh, Jim Lawson. Reverend Lawson, always glad to talk with you. Welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you. Um, very solemn occasion, obviously, in Washington, D.C. Um, we had some video earlier where you were uh, you had walked arm in arm at one of those marches. Uh, you were there with him, if I'm correct, uh, in March of this year when he took his last walk across the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, correct? Yes, that's right. What your fondest memory of Congressman Lewis and what about what was it about him that made him so effective? So what? So effective. <laughs> Well, I think I think the key to John Lewis is to be found in his uh, early life, growing up uh, near Troy, Alabama, the son, one of ten children, offsprings of uh, his parents who were sharecroppers, and all ten children, of course. Uh, uh, worked on the farm to make it to make a living, uh, but at an early age, uh, it's clear to me from reading his books and all, as well as from watching him and being close to him from night. I met him in 1958 in the ground floor of the movement that he and I call the nonviolent movement of America. We do not call it the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, anyway, so the, the key was that John knew by the time he was 12 or 15 that the life his parents and his sisters and brothers had to live uh, in um, as sharecroppers in Alabama, was against God's will, was unnecessary, and was a form of torture and hatred. That as well as they endured and as well as they still, as they struggled with it, that, that, that it, wa it was wrong. They had to do their best in the middle of a huge wrong 
system. So I think the key to John is to understand that he was looking from age 15 at least for the way he could spend his life dismantling that system. And um, Martin King gave him an immediate option with the Montgomery bus boycott. And Martin King, that he heard in that teen period of his life, gave him an understanding of a religious perspective, especially the role of Jesus. And then when he came to uh, Nashville, and we in Nashville were launching the first major campaign to desegregate uh, the nation. We, our goal was to desegregate the Nashville downtown. That was the goal. C.T. Vivian was in on that decision. Kelly Miller Smith, uh, Dolores Wilkerson, Janetta Hayes, Andrew White, I could name a number of others. But we, we determined systematically we were going to desegregate downtown Nashville, which was a huge goal. And no one had ever set that as a civil rights goal. Uh, but the black women who very often were the greater victims of of segregation and racism were the ones who helped us decide to make that our goal. This then reshaped the whole movement and the aspirations and black people across the country just worked at getting access, jobs, getting the vicious signs out, stopping the uh, uh, no colored uh, white only stuff and and uh, no negro in can can sit in can uh, should be in this town after sunset all of that stuff that was across the country and so that that essentially was the king rosa parks movement cuz uh nashville set the example mm-hmm. and uh then albany georgia used our plan and went to work on desegregating downtown Albany, Georgia. The Freedom Ride, the Freedom Ride could not have happened if our Nashville movement had not determined that we could not let violence of any kind stop the movement. Mm-hmm. And the in 63 and so forth and so on. So John found in our preparation and uh, study, careful study and strategizing in Nashville, the things that changed his life, gave him, that saved his life. He he actually says in his memoir that I changed his life, but I maintain it wasn't that. I had spent 10 years studying nonviolent struggle and understanding it in the light of Christian faith and Gandhi, who presented it in the 20th century, and John grabbed those ideas so fast, made them his own. <laughs> That's what that is. The, the, again, you 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 obviously older than him. Reverend C. T. Vivian uh, yeah. at the time was also older. And the yeah. thing that when I was talking to Ambassador Andrew Young, to, what to point you just said, point that you just said, uh, he said that he said that John Lewis 
absolutely fundamentally believed with every fiber is being in the non-violent uh, aspect of the movement. He said that that he embodied it. It has to be understood that one of the things I taught across the South was that Jesus was a non-violent force. <laughs> that his that Jesus's behavior in the form, in life was a declaration that there could be a godly order on earth that could be produced by and through the power of the life force and the power of love. Uh, uh, so that that's one of the very first uh, pieces of work that I did in, in preparation of people, in helping people to understand what Montgomery Bus Boycott was about and how it could be translated into new campaigns. So John adopted that understanding mm -hmm. of the Christian faith in Jesus. And one of the things I wish uh, that um, in this period of time we would understand through John's death is that he was a man of faith and of Jesus-oriented faith. And that so much of Christianity in the United States is false religion <laughs> and bad religion concerning mm -hmm. Jesus. And so the, the, church, the nation has an option to select, have you got good religion? And John, John Lewis had good religion. To that, to that particular point, um, we're seeing what's happening in Portland right now. We're seeing these protests happen all across the country. I've had reporters calling me, people asking me as well. Uh, my thoughts on the actions happening there. Others are saying that there are provocateurs uh, who are doing this thing on purpose. Um, and not not you speaking for him, but knowing him well and also speaking for yourself. Um, what, would a, what would John Lewis and what would Reverend Lawson say to these protesters uh, in Portland, to say to protesters in Seattle uh, and, and, and to others, where there are critics of these violent clashes? Well, the press does not report it very well, I would have to say to you. Mm -hmm. First instance, the violence in the United States, including the police shooting of George Floyd, is what I call the most violent culture in the world, and almost all of us Americans are weaned on the historic violence of the United States that continues in on this very day. So that's that's number one. The, the police violence is a symptom of that culture of violence in our society, mm -hmm. and these the the people who want to do looting. And the people uh, out of some of the anarchist groups that I have been, uh, that I have visited with a, ne a number of parts of the country, uh, probably for 30, 40 years, they are all uh, uh, the uh, progenitors of the culture of violence. 
cannot be blamed on BLM because BLM, I've heard the founders and I've watched many of the demonstrations for the last three months, BLM operates out of essentially a nonviolent portrayal. Mm. So that violence that that we see in Seattle is especially uh, atrocious because I have had arguments with young men, especially, and young white men on the on the West Coast for years, decades now, who maintain that in demonstrations you need to hand wrestle with the police. Well, that's stupidity. Um, in in preparing for the Nashville campaign in 1959-60, uh, one of the illustrations I used was uh, that the police are not the issue. Injustice is the issue. The racism is the issue. And that you cannot... That no, no unit of... Uh, in the United States has the power to beat up and stop a police force in Nashville or Seattle. And if you, if you develop that much firepower and physical force that you could defeat the police of Seattle, then you would ne immediately have to deal with the Seattle, with the state police and the National Guard. And you don't have the physical powers or the weaponry to stop the National Guard from defeating you. And if you could have enough violence to defeat the National Guard, you could not defeat the United States Navy or Army or Air Force or Marine Corps or Coast Guard people. And so to even play with the idea of violence is a form of perpetuating the injustice you claim you detest. Last question for you. I, I hear this a lot. People say, what are we going to do now since we've lost Congress and John, John Lewis and we lost Reverend C.T. Vivian and then in March, Reverend Joseph Lowry uh, in September, Juanita Abernathy. And so there's so many, of course, uh, these iconic figures uh, who have gone from, who have transitioned from elders to ancestors. And, and what I say to them is they did their part. Now, if you have paid any attention to them while they were living and listened to them, you now have to do your job. It is the continuum that we've always had uh, in our community uh, where elders, trans, where folks go from being young uh, to being veterans, to being elders, to transition to ancestors. And then that next generation comes right behind and can picks up and continues to do the work and run their own race. Well, social movements uh, are evolutionary. And I would say to you that already, as I've watched the present demonstrations across our country 2020, those demonstrations have already surpassed um, what we did in John Lewis and uh, Juanita and others of us were able to promote in the 20, 20th century. and. And also, the issue of racist violence as demonstrated through the government and through the police 
is an issue that while we were aware of it all the time, it's only because uh, in the 21st century that that issue can become the focus issue. The prisons and racist structures. Now, those issues were always present in the 20th century. But uh, uh, the, the progress can't be overturned or cannot be established in one night or one movement. And a 300- and 400-year process of racism and injustice cannot be overturned and cannot even be seen in a single campaign. Mm -hmm. So I maintain, I, I look at what I see, and I've talked with BLM people here locally by Zoom and whatnot, and I've tried to study what's happening across the country. And, and this is, in my mind, um, the first massive movement in the 21st century, and there must be many of them in many different fields. It is time for white people and some white leadership to emerge to do major nonviolent campaigns against homelessness, against the the poverty that is structured poverty. 140 million people, most of them working people, the Poor People's Campaign says, are in poverty, and most of them are working people. Their wages are just another form of slavery, while this nation accumulates wealth for the wealthy in enormous categories. So it's really time for some white male leadership to emerge that goes after some of these structured forms of cruelty in our country. Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Great oh. point. No, no, no. I was just listening to you. Okay. I was, anyway, I, I was, I was, I was, let, I was letting you do your thing. That's my point. If If they would do like the BLM is doing on wages and uh, I mean, uh, here, uh, um, Microsoft uh, produces a number of people who are massive billionaires, uh, and the ordinary workers in Microsoft uh, have very, very modest or immodest wages. Amazon the same way, Walmart the same way. So it's time for white leadership in this country to step forward and go after the economic uh, greed that is causing so much poverty in our country, is the source of the poverty. Indeed. So instead of, instead of uh, looking at BLM critically, which has produced a, a great piece of work, by getting the nation to look at the execution of innocent people. And I use execution rather than murder because it's governmental power that without trial, without indictment, <laughs> without gathering every, any evidence, George Floyd is killed without indictment, without trial, without conviction. 
he is executed, not murdered, and he's executed by state power. Reverend Jim, it is time mm -hmm. for the nation to stop it. Reverend Jim Lawson, always a pleasure talking with you. Uh, All we, right, we you take care. We appreciate your wisdom, Thanks sir. For me. Thank you very much. Folks, let's turn right now to college roommate of the late Congressman John Lewis, uh, Bernard Lafayette. Bernard, how you doing, man? Well, we're doing the best we can under the circumstances. Uh, Bernard, when you uh, when when you listen to uh, Jim Lawson, he's still teaching. Yes, yes, he is, and that's the thing that really inspired me and motivated me to get involved in the movement. Uh, in Nashville when we were involved in the sit-in movement. He was the one that was conducting the workshop. There is no coincidence that you had a lot of young college leaders who actually matured, okay, mm -hmm. as they continued to follow the teachings that they had learned from Jim Lawson, Diane Nash, Marion Barry, the first black mayor of uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Jim Bevel, and, uh, and, and others, of course. So this is one of the things that's important, and that's my life's work, training and teaching people. What I've learned over the years, not only from my teachers, but from my experiences. So um, it's so great to hear him again. It's hard to believe after all of these years that uh, he's still as strong and, and uh, as coherent and clear as he is. And there's no better teacher. Um, Reverend, La Reverend um, not Reverend Lawson, I'm sorry. Congressman, Congressman Lewis, uh, you, were t you were telling the story I heard you say it before that uh, basically he, 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 he wrote you hard to come down to the meetings and he was bugging the hell out of you so you would find like, to get him to shut up, you're like, fine, I'll go with you. Yes, that's right. I was uh, John Lewis's roommate and uh, he uh, insisted that I would, you know, go to these uh, workshops. Now, I didn't know what a workshop was at that time, but I already had a lot of jobs and so I was a janitor to the second floor, wash dishes, you know, uh, there uh, in the cafeteria uh, at the school, the American Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, I was also the uh, assistant librarian and ended up being the librarian. Because the library. So I had a lot of jobs. And so I told him I did not have time to go to any workshops. I was working uh, on my uh, school work as well. So um, he insisted, and that's the thing about John Lewis, you can't say no to John Lewis. He continues until he's able to persuade you, okay? And he doesn't argue with you. He doesn't shout at you and that sort of thing. It's a very consistent. And the reason why he's, he does that or he did that was because he knew he was going to prevail. 
Now, that's the thing that you have to understand about John. John never hesitated because he was absolutely convinced that he would prevail. And when he's, I was just going to go just to stop John from talking. I didn't want to hear him anymore. So I can tell him I did go. So, you know, forget it. Now, the most important thing about John as a, a lesson from that is that he will only try to convince you to do what is best for you. Wasn't best for him. What's best for you? Does it? Does it? Does it? I gotta ask you this here, because he was when he did his annual pilgrimage. Republicans often went with him. I often, I often said uh, that they took it as a field trip. Um, when you see, when you see the praise now, I guess what, what bugs a lot of people is that you hear all of these plaudits from people who oppose the very thing he fought for. Congressman Jim Clyburn, they, the House has renamed uh, the bill to um, to fix what uh, was stripped stripped of Shelby V. Holder, uh, the John Lewis Act. They're going to do that same thing in the Senate. Mitch McConnell hasn't moved on it as well. Um, did, did, that, did that bother you? Does it bother you when you hear Republicans, oh, John was this and he was that, yet they actually are engaged in policies that are the antithesis of what he stood for? That's, you know, you're always good. And that's another good example of why you're who you are. Okay? Because <laughs> nobody has asked that question before on all of the interviews and questions like thinking. So here's what we're talking about. We're talking about people who have different motives. Mm. The, they may be convinced that what he's saying is right, ultimately, but they are making political decisions because some people don't do what is right. They think they're doing what is good for them. And what they want to do is stay in office, stay in power, okay? But they're not doing what is right for the cause, for everybody else. They may be taking the position of doing what is going to get them what they want. It's different to do what you do because of what you want and to do what you do because it's right. There are going to be more, obviously, bodies lying in state in the U.S. Capitol tomorrow, as it was tonight, today, and then tomorrow. It goes to Georgia, lie in state there, and then, of course, the funeral takes place on Thursday. And I ask this of Jim Lawson, I'll ask you, when, when you hear people say, what are we going to do next? We're losing so many of our uh, civil rights leaders. For me, I remind them that y'all were 18, 19, 20, and 21. It's the responsibility of the folks today who are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 25, 30 to assert their rightful place and to do the work. Yes, that's what we had to do for those who 
okay, like Roy Wilkins and others who uh, were older than we were, who led the way, Martin Luther King. So my point is, we have to look to the next generation. Now, here's one proposal I want to set forth, and I just hope that uh, people will take it up for the young people. I'd like to see us put together a legislature, a youth legislature, that replicates the existing legislature where John was and the other elected officials. But for every district, young people would vote on other young people to be their representatives, ages, say, 12 to 17. It'll do several things. The first thing it would do is give the young people an appreciation for the uh, process, okay, that's involved in our democracy. Right. This is a critical part of our democracy. And a lot of young people don't even know who's running for office. The whole idea of taxation without representation, our young people pay more, a lot of more taxes sometimes than we do. Look at those shoes they wear. I know they're tennis shoes, but look how much they cost. Mm -hmm. They cost more than our shoes. So my point is, we want them to be participation people, mm -hmm. okay? Not just uh, uh, observing and hearing on TV, okay, or whatever, but we want them to actually get out and vote for their fellow young people for office. It'll be set, and here's what will happen. Number one, they'll start getting more interested in our legislature and what bills that we have before us. In fact, they can vote on the bills before the adult legislature. And uh, those uh, legislators uh, among the young people can meet once a month and have a party. In fact, it would be the youth party. Okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the youth party. And they could have a real party at the same time for all those who turn 18 and bring in their uh, voter registration cards, okay? Then you can invite some of the adults there to tell us what's going on and what decisions that are being considered and that kind of thing, et cetera. So uh, they'll be practicing the government Okay, and before they start running the government. Now, it's the same thing with sports. You have youth teams, so they get ready to, what, go to the college teams, uh, professional teams, and that kind sort of thing. But you have youth. That's how you get to be good. It's called, it's called teaching civics. Yes, exactly. Teaching civics. Let's do that, and I'll tell you what, we'll have a, a more involvement with young leadership and more talented leadership and more sophisticated leadership in our future. Now, that's what I'd like to see, and that's why I'm staying on my medication. All right. Bernard Lafayette, always a pleasure. Thank you so very much. We'll chat soon. And I'm proud of you, too, by the way. Huh? Okay. I'm proud of you. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. it, sir. Thank you so very much. Thank you.
Thank you. All right, folks. Again, it has been uh, quite the last several days. Uh, of course, uh, Congressman John Lewis's family waited until after the funeral of Reverend C.T. Vivian before they announced uh, their plans. Like I said, uh, they had the ceremonies in Troy, Alabama, uh, in Selma, in Montgomery, now in Washington, D.C., and then they head, of course, to Atlanta uh, on Wednesday. We go to, to Atlanta right now to talk to former mayor of Atlanta, former uh, congressman from uh, Georgia, former United States uh, ambassador, and of course, another one of our iconic figures in, in the black freedom movement, and that is uh, Ambassador Andrew Young. Oh, I'm sorry, let, let me correct that, I'm sorry. Uh, his Excellency, His Excellency the Great, uh, the Most Bountiful, oh, the Beautiful. Cut all, let, cut all that bull out. Cut all that bull out. So, I, so, so I just want everybody to understand. In fact, oh, the, the, no. the, the night we were on the, the night uh, Congressman Lewis passed, I was on the phone with Ambassador Young and John O'Brien, and he asked me how old I was. He's like, 51? He said, you got to call me more than Mr. No, come on. I was I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Let me say that uh, let, let me disagree with my brother Bernard Lafayette. And if you can call him back and ask him to call me, I lost his phone number. I got you. I'll text you his number right now. Okay, but but you know, I I tell a story of a young man who was about 14. And I was running for Congress, and he uh, asked me what he could do to help. And I gave him a stack of bumper stickers. And he and his boys went around the neighborhood cleaning off people's bumpers and putting their bumper stickers on, and uh, I got elected to Congress. Uh, one day I got a call, and he was calling in. And he didn't say congressman. I, he said, tell Andy I'm on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I picked up the phone and he said, look, I'm trying to get in the house. Can you help me? I said, well, you help me get into Congress. I can help you get in the house." <laughs> so I put him in the house. I called. His grades weren't that good. And I told people at house I said, my grades in high school weren't that good either. So <laughs> I wish you'd give him a chance. Well, I stayed in Congress four years. Then I went to the U.N. Lo and behold, he calls the U.N. and asks for Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, little brother, I said, I, I is an ambassador right now. You got to call me ambassador. He said, you still Andy as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> he said, but I need, I need your help. I need to get into law school. See, and I said, I said, well, where you want to go? He said, didn't you go to Howard? I said, yeah, I went to Howard. He said, if you could get me in a law, Howard Law School, he, I said, how did you do on the SA, LSAT? He said, I don't know, but uh, I could have done better. And I said, well, let me try. So I called the dean and I asked him to give this boy a chance. Doggone if he didn't get into Howard Law School. I was at the UN three years, came home, and they made me run for mayor. So here I am, the mayor of Atlanta now. And we start building the Atlanta airport. And we had to borrow $300 million. And I had to go to Wall Street to sign the, the debt for these bonds. When I get into the Wall Street law firm, who is sitting on the other side of the table but this same little colored boy <laughs> that I've been nursing through school all the day? And I said, what the hell are you doing here? He said, I'm telling you how to get this money. 
<laughs> so what do, you, what do you mean? He said, you don't know what you're doing. I'm here. I've been to law school. I said, well, tell me, how much do you get for sitting over there on the other side of the table telling me what to do? He said, well, the fees to my firm, our firm are $600,000. I said, what? I said, you making $600,000 in one day's work? And they ain't paying me but $50,000 for a whole year as mayor. <laughs> he said, well, you, you, you should have gone to law school. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's what I see in politics. So I think young people, young people need to get ready to guide us. And they need to spend as much time in school, but as much of their free time in politics. Now, that's where I remember John Lewis. John Lewis, when I went to, I don't think John Lewis pledged a fraternity on, on Fisk campus. But when I went to Fisk to speak, he was on the way going the other direction when all of the fraternities and sororities were in their hell week. And I said, who is that? Where is he going? So that's John Lewis. He's going to test the restaurant's that agreed to desegregate, and he's going to test to make sure that they desegregated their lunch counters. See? Now, he wasn't but about 19 then, and he was already taking care of business. Mm -hmm. And he stayed serious from 18. Well, he, he went to see Dr. King at 15. He wrote him a letter. And Dr. King sent him a bus ticket to come from Troy to Montgomery. And they would, he was trying to get into Troy State. And he finally decided that rather than go through the conflict and to go on to Nashville to school. Now, I want to see young people active right now. I think that this is the next 100 days is maybe the most important 100 days in our lives. We got to do what this young man did to, for me. We got to get out and knock on doors, get people to do their census work and report and get counted so they are somebody in their communities. And they need to be reminded of that. And then they need to be sure that they vote in November. Because this election is going to determine really the health of this country, mm -hmm. probably for the next 40, 50 years, because it, it, it's just that important. Now, they don't need to play games yet. I, I, I mean, they don't need to play legislation. They can talk to their congressmen. They can talk to the people who are running for office, and they can be represented now. And uh, this is the only game that counts. They have done a marvelous job with Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. the all, I've never seen a demonstration that went around the world in less than 30 days. They were marching for Black Lives Matter in New Zealand, mm -hmm. way down in the bottom of the earth, see, all over Europe, all over Africa. People were talking Black Lives Matter. So they made their point. Now is the time to get on the case and take care of real business in the real Congress of the United States.
and state yeah. cap and, and state capitals and, 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 state and ca county commissioners courts city halls school boards where the, the where the policy is being made it's the, it's, the it's the district attorneys right that are making all these cases and sending all these people to jail make sure you have a district attorney that you know the trust that you trust and that will look out for the interests of black people i mean you can you can be put in jail for almost anything uh spitting on a sidewalk yep uh and uh it's not just white policemen, it's black policemen too. But we need black policemen because we got some crazy folk out here. And we need to integrate our police forces and we need more women on the police forces. I've, I've found that uh, our, our police force here in Atlanta when I was mayor was half and half black and white and a third of them were women. And the women, the women use their brains. The men tend to rely on their brawn. Uh, and men are more likely to shoot you than women. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we got a lot of work to do. And I, I don't think we can put off any longer. We can't wait for you to grow up. You got to grow up now yep. and take, start taking care of business. And just as, you know, we went ahead of you all, um, Thurgood Marshall went ahead of me. Yep. Uh, I, I went to a courthouse when I was nine years old and I saw the Thurgood Marshall, you know, pleading the case when I was 29 and went to work with Martin Luther King, he had been working on these court cases. He had been working on these legislative bills for 20 years. So we had a framework that we could just fit right into. Unfortunately, there isn't a framework already in place that Black Lives Matter can just turn over to us adults. They need to sort of define that and, and re redefine what law enforcement is. Mm -hmm. uh, and they need to redefine how, redefine how money is invested. Uh, the most important thing they could get out of this is uh, elimination of student loan debt. Yep. And um, it, it's, it's dealing with real, real power and real money. Marching is symbolic. Right. But money and political power is substantive. And so I, I just want to push you toward the substance. Last question for you. Got to ask you this here. Uh, I asked Jim Lawson to weigh in. Um, what do you have to say about what you're seeing in Portland? Um, I talked to some activists, and they said that, uh, well, they said whites should not be centering themselves. Other, the Portland NAACP leader is saying, hey, what y'all are doing ain't helping the movement. Just your thoughts on it. My thoughts are that they ought to quit. You see, and I'm not being racial about it. I'm saying that the Chinese had a demonstration in Tiananmen Square. And when the police showed up, they wanted to stand there and be bad. And they got beat up and they got wiped out and they got thrown into jail and the freedom movement was killed in China. That didn't happen in Poland. In Poland, they'd make their demonstrations and when the Russian tanks would show up, they would get up and go back to work. And then 
when the Russian tax left, they would come back a week or a month later. And but they never had a confrontation with armed forces. Mm -hmm. See, now you cannot win a confrontation with an armed army. Got it. I've been tear gassed enough times to know that when you get tear gassed, you're going to get sick and you're going to stop that. Whatever you're doing, you're going to stop it. And um, they need to stop it. Go back work on the census, work on this election, and develop an agenda that they want the Congress to take on in January. When they come in, they should come in with a list of legislative suggestions. And that can be almost anything they think of. Right. But they've got to provide the votes in the Congress yep. and the Senate to make their symbolic actions, substantive, powerful uh, activities. Ambassador, Mayor, Congressman, Alpha Man, Andrew Young. God bless you. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yes, sir. I tell Bernard to call me. Uh, I will tell. I've already texted you his number. I'll text. I'll okay, text. I'll, I'll hit him up. All right. Thanks a lot, sir. Bye. All right, folks. Uh, Charles Cobb is one of the uh, folks who worked in SNCC. And... On the front lines, doing his thing. He joins us right now. Hey, Charles. Hey, Roland. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Uh, haven't seen you since last year when we were passing through the airport when I was at uh, the Black Journalist Convention in Miami. Right. And I was really looking forward to the SNCC 60th here in D.C., but coronavirus canceled that. And so I am hopeful uh, we'll be able to hold it next year. Uh, in 2021. Yeah, we actually have a date for for June of uh, 2021. Oh. I think it's June 3rd through 5th, but don't hold me to that. Well, you can't keep but me abreast. It will be in June of uh, of next year. Keep me abreast of that in because DC. because we want to uh, we want to shoot a lot of that live stream as much as we can. So look forward to that. Just um, for our audience, when did you first meet John Lewis? Uh, did we lose Charles? All right, folks, we'll go to a commercial break. When we come back, we'll get Charles Cobb back on the phone. Uh, we'll have a talk with him. We'll also talk with a brother who lost 130 pounds, and he says he can help you lose weight. And then my conversation with Jane Elliott. That's you next, want Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. rollermartinunfiltered.com. All right, folks, what you're seeing is a live look outside of the U.S. Capitol, the east side of the U.S. Capitol, where folks have started um, uh, lining up there to uh, view the uh, body of, uh, excuse me, the uh, casket of Congressman uh, John Lewis. They have wheeled it out to that, uh, to that east portion. Do we have Charles Cobb, folks? All right, Charles Cobb Hello? is back. Charles, we got yeah, you. We lost yeah, you there. I don't know what happened. It's all good. It happens. Uh, yeah, we're, can you hear yeah. me? Yeah, I can hear you. All can right. you hear me? Yes, sir. First time you had, first time you met John Lewis. What do you remember? Oh, well, John was was uh, uh, chairman of SNCC then. He had been he had been just been elected by acclaim, by the way, uh, to become the chairman of SNCC. That was in 1962. 
uh, and and first time. Hello. Yeah, we're here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I, I'm I'm hearing another voice coming. Okay, it was in 1962. He had just been elected by a claim. Uh, to become the chairman of SNCC, which I think, as I recall, that was in Nashville, Tennessee, yep. at a SNCC conference. And he uh, – there was a conversation, and John – I didn't really know him that well, but people were telling me, because I was pretty new to SNCC then too, and he, people were telling me that – pointing him out to me as a guy of unimaginable – Courage, because I was curious as to why he was elected uh, chairman by acclaim, mm -hmm. and, and what people were pointing out to me was, if you want to understand courage in the face of danger, then this is the guy you need to pay attention to. And I had a brief conversation with him uh, because he was getting ready to go to Cairo, Illinois. Uh, because there was a series of protests going on in Carroll, Illinois. And I, I told him well, he should look up uh, my uh, great-aunt Hattie, who was uh, very active in civil rights in that southern Illinois city. Uh, folks, while uh, Charles is talking, uh, you are seeing right here uh, ben, Secretary of HUD Ben Carson and Vice President Mike Pence uh, paying their respects uh, to Congressman John Lewis on the uh, East Plaza of the U.S. Capitol. Donald Trump made it perfectly clear he is not going uh, to pay his respects. Uh, we, were we, we were not shocked by that at all. Uh, going back to Charles Cobb. Uh, Charles, um, um, the thing, when I had a conversation with Congressman Lewis in 2018, he really he said that, that the demise of SNCC was so painful because it deprived young folks of their own national organization for them to be able to be involved in leadership. You agree? I agree with half of it. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I agree with the first part. It was painful, but I, I should also make the point that it was slow. Uh, we, we could have a whole conversation about the demise of SNCC, uh, which really you begin to see from about 1966 into the early part of the 1970s. There are complicated reasons uh, for that. Uh, I don't think um, uh, you can point to the demise of SNCC as a reason uh, young people uh, didn't have a way to, uh, didn't have a national voice and didn't have a way to express what they wanted. Because remember, in the wake of SNCC came the Black Panther Party, right. which was a national organization. And that was an organization, and again, there are lots of contradictions in the party, but it was an important voice sabotaged by COINTELPRO in the 1970s, in the aftermath of SNCC. In fact, the Panther of the Black Panther Party was borrowed, or they wrote us, Huey Newton and uh, Bobby Seale, asking SNCC if they could use the panther SNCC was using in Lowndes County, Alabama. And, and so I think uh, we have to be careful about cause and effects here uh, with, with respect to this. I think struggle itself ebbs and flows. 
and I don't think you can, uh, uh, and I don't think uh, you can attach the demise of any particular organization mm-hmm. to 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 the reason struggle ebbs. Or you can't, you know, if you look at black history in this country, struggle has been fairly continuous. Got it. Uh, you know, and that's part of how John was able to emerge uh, as a as a young man from Alabama. The um, it is certainly uh, a huge loss. Um, the uh, the focus of so many people, and I think, and what I also hope, I also hope that people realize that uh, John Lewis uh, was not the movement. He was not SNCC. Uh, there were so many other people who were involved, uh, and those stories are equally important because it was a movement of people, of a number of people, many known, yeah. a lot unknown. Yeah, if you look at John's life, what you see is a life rooted in the black community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, that that the real lesson of John's um, life and work, and certainly during that period when he was involved with SNCC, uh, the real lesson in John's life is is that you you can find strength in the community, strength enough to sustain struggle, strength enough to generate organization for change. John John didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, and he was shaped. By, as you say, by a range of people, most of whom have disappeared from the pages of history and shaped by a lot of – you can't talk, for instance, about the Selma to Montgomery March without talking about the struggle in Marion, Alabama that preceded it. And, and I, I, I heard Andy uh, on the phone just before uh, I came on, and, and I, I thought about Marion because that's where Andy's wife was from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that struggle in Marion, Alabama was the real trigger for the Selma to Montgomery March. And to look at the Marion, Alabama struggle for voting rights, Indeed. which was led by SCLC, uh, to look at that struggle is to, get, is to look at a model of community organizing at the grassroots. And it was the assassination of Jimmy Lee Jackson mm-hmm. within the context of that Absolutely. work. That triggered the Selma to Montgomery uh, march. It's everything tracks back to the community, and here I'm talking about the black community. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and John's life is rooted in the struggles of the black community. Charles Cobb, always a good talk with you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so very it's much. Good. Okay. We'll talk. We'll chat soon. Thanks, sir. Folks, real quick break. We come back, Fit Live Win. We talked to a brother, lost 130 pounds, and he says he can help you. And after that, my conversation with the great Jane Elliott right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com.
All right, folks, imagine being 330 pounds and you say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm ready to lose some weight. And you drop 130 pounds. Well, that's exactly what my next guest, uh, Rodney Leon, did. Uh, he joins us right now. Rodney, how you doing? Hey, Martin. How you doing, Mr. Rowland? Uh, it's great chatting with you. We see those photos. There. So the photo on the left, that was when you were 330? Yes, sir. And then, uh, and then of course, on the right, that's what, 200 pounds? Yes, sir. Man, what? So, um, so, how did that happen? So, what were you? Were you playing sports? Did you just simply just? Were you always big? Did you just? So, so, what happened? Where your weight got that high? And when you said, you know what, I, I got to drop this, man. It's, uh, uh, we got to change. Um, I'd always been an athlete. Played football in high school. Wrestled at the same time. Um, fresh out of high school, I got my record messed up. Um, got my identity stolen. And it, it just had me in a really depressed state of mind. Um, got severely depressed, losing family members at the same time, going in and out of the court systems. And, you know, it just weighs on you. And right when I got that case off of me, I beat it. And I moved to Georgia. I, I stayed with my brother. I'm going to get my life together. And um, our mother passed away. So that really took me a little bit further down that depression. You know what I'm saying? So um, it took uh, me beating my wife. I met my wife online. She knew that I was a good guy, but it was just something wrong. I, it was something off about me. It took me about three months to tell my wife at the time, my girlfriend, that my mother had passed, and then it made all made sense to her. So we went through our relationship. I was still a little depressed. It was weighing on me. I had that cloud over my head, but it took for her to walk in that room. She had that pregnancy test, and she's like, we're expecting it. That's when the light bulb went off, and I knew my son was on the way. So um, I started getting my act together, and then... Um, How long ago was that? That was in 2018. So, so you you were in 2018, two years ago. You're 3:30. Your wife says I'm pregnant, and then you say, you know what? I I, I got the change. I got to change it. How long did it take you to lose 130 pounds? I took 55 weeks. For 55 weeks, I averaged 2.6 pounds a week. And uh, what folks are already asking is. How? how? How did you do it? Because what happens is, you know, we you got diets left and right. You got folks who are running and jogging and working out, and people say, man, I'm doing this stuff. I'm seeing no results. How did you do it? Um, I prioritized. I, first, I became a trainer myself. Um, that's something I had always been passionate about before I got overweight, so I went ahead and, and pursued my passion to becoming a trainer. I got certified, um, and then I, I, I looked for a mentor. I, I told myself, you know, I don't know it all, I uh, need somebody to teach me the rope, somebody that's been there and done that in the career I'm going after. So that's when I reached out to my mentor, A.J. Ellison. And he says, well, you know, if you want to do what I do, we got to start from the very basics. You got to learn. You got to lose that weight first. Then I'll, I'll show you the rest. I knocked off the weight. Um, it, it was just a journey, man. Just every single day, every single week, doing the tiny little things that add up. Um, kind of like if I asked you to chop down a tree, I gave you an axe. And you wouldn't try to chop that tree down with one swing, would you? No, you would try to just fixate at one point, and you would hit that tree, hit it, hit it, hit it, and eventually that tree would fall over. So I look at weight loss the same way. You got to stop trying to look at a big goal. Oh, I have to lose 130 pounds. That's so much, you're going to get overwhelmed. Focus on just two to four pounds a week, every single week consistently, and before you know it, man, you're down 40, 50 pounds, and that momentum right there will give you all the encouragement you need to keep going. So was the, was, when, when it came to, because here's the other piece we talk about, diets and things along those lines. There are a lot mm -hmm. of people who think, I just have to just 
totally change everything and I got to eat a whole bunch of foods I don't even like. Uh, no. You you really focus out there saying, no, you don't have to do that. Nope. No, you don't have to do that. You have to find, you look at the foods that you eat on a daily basis. Uh, it could be Taco Bell, it could be KFC, it could be Cheesecake Factory or whatever you fancy. Um, for myself, I, I looked at what I ate on a regular basis that was getting me overweight. I was eating a lot of Mexican food. I was eating a lot of Jamaican food. I was eating a lot of Asian food, a lot of Thai and stir fries and stuff like that. So I started to incorporate those styles of cuisines into my day-to-day -day meals that are on my nutrition plan. And I stuck with it. Those three cuisines, Jamaican, if I'm cooking my chicken breast for the week for my meal plan, I go ahead and put some jerk rub on there. Um, I'll do like an Asian stir fry. Um, I have a Mexican hot sauce I can't get enough of. So I, I'm eating the same kind of foods. It's just I cleaned it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, portion control also a part of this? Yes. Consumption of water, rest? Plenty of water, plenty of sleep. But the, the biggest thing people neglect is they think they have to just hack away at the carbohydrates and they neglect resistance training. You have to have those carbs in your diet to help you perform. Okay, so when you, you say resistance training, what does yes. that mean? Resistance training, and I talk about it in my ebook, Fit for My Family, Down 130 Pounds. Um, the four types of resistance training that I recommend, barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells. You could even do TRX suspension training, uh, body weight, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, dips, lunges, those things like that. Any kind of resistance you can put on the body to overload it, to give it a, a bigger overload than it's used to. So what? So and so with with, with uh, resistance bands, that's also a part of it. Resistance bands have their place, but resistance bands alone will not get you the results you're looking for. You have to incorporate that with another form of resistance training to add a little bit of oomph to your plan, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a couple more questions for you. So now, how have you 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 dropped it? Have you been able to keep it off? Absolutely, because it's a lifestyle now. Um, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you don't just say, well, I'm going to go ahead and get in shape and I'm going to get in shape for this wedding. Once I get in shape for this wedding, I'm, I'm good. No, it you'll gain that weight back so fast. Before you know it, those 40 pounds you lost for that wedding will jump right back on you unless you continue eating the, the same way you got that weight off. Uh, and uh, when we talk about... Uh, how you now helped other people, and so uh, you talk about your ebook. But what, what else are you doing to help people who also want to uh, lose weight themselves? I do online coaching, nutrition plans, and workout programs. Um, I have clients all over the world: clients in Saudi Arabia, uh, Germany, Russia, here in the states. And I just help them. I give them online coaching as to what to eat, uh, the portion sizes to eat it in how to properly do cardio, how to properly do a structured workout program. And most of all, I teach them not to be like me and make the mistake and not sleep. Sleep is very important to weight loss. You need that recovery to help uh, the body build back what it lost during exercise. And what's that, what, six, seven, eight hours? Six to eight hours is a must. That's imperative to your progress losing weight. Okay. All right. Rodney, how can folks reach you? They can reach me on Instagram at rlenfit, R-L-E-N-F-I-T. My um, uh, email, rodneylennonfitness at gmail.com. Facebook, Rodney Lennon. I'll be available to him. All right. Rodney, we appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Roland. All right, folks. Real quick break. We come back. 
Get ready. Y'all know Jane Elliott, she gonna bring the funk. And that's why we love talking to her. She is next, right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like you'll go Putin, Russia, Taliban, kill. Our military. All right, folks, uh, that is uh, one of the uh, the uh, anti-Trump uh, ads that was run. Normally what we do is when we have our panel here, we run a block of those ads and then we talk about those ads. And so there are a lot. So trust me, so many dropped this weekend. It's crazy. We got a number of them uh, that have actually uh, dropped this weekend. So we're uh, looking forward to uh, having our panel back tomorrow because, of course, uh, the John Lewis coverage. And then uh, we're about to dedicate an hour conversation with Jane Elliott. Uh, that's why we didn't have the panel. So we're really looking forward uh, to uh, to that conversation. Also, great conversation that with Rodney. So a lot of people out there, uh, people have been reaching out to us, folks, about our, our Fit Live Win segment. Uh, that's all about providing you opportunities with being able to uh, learn about different people and what they're doing when it comes to weight loss, when it comes to eating healthy, things along those lines. So that's why uh, we do what we do. And so uh, that uh, is what we're looking forward to. Uh, also, folks, uh, as I told you uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, uh, they are having the viewing of, of Congressman. Uh, folks are actually not, have been lining up uh, to um, see the casket of Congressman uh, John Lewis. Uh, that's going to go for a few more hours uh, today. And then, of course, it is going to, you can go back to that feed. Uh, it's going to go for about the next three hours or so. Uh, and then what's going to happen is uh, tomorrow, uh, beginning at 8 a.m., uh, the body will be actually... Um, in that same position. And so if you're in, uh, first of all, anybody can come from anywhere they want to, but if you're in the D.C. area, Maryland, Virginia, certainly people will be lining up in the morning uh, to actually do that all day. They, they, they recommend you please bring your umbrella uh, for protection from the heat. Also bring water. As I said, uh, one of the uh, Navy uh, guys, one of the eight people there, there's always two members of each branch of uh, the military who uh, carry the casket. They carry the casket up the steps. He actually collapsed uh, before they actually pull, pull Congressman Lewis's casket out of the car, uh, collapse from heat exhaustion. So please, if you're going to be in line uh, to uh, see the um, casket of Congressman Lewis, please bring some water, please eat, please have your umbrella to protect yourself from the heat. That's what we really, really, really want you to do. And so let's go full screen there so you'll see uh, the uh, folks there um, with the uh, folks are there uh, taking photos. Uh, as well. Uh, go ahead and pull the audio up. Tomorrow, as folks are taking photos and music and things along those lines. Um, as they um, celebrate uh, and commemorate the life of Congressman um, uh, John Lewis. Um, he, of course, um, they had, he was lying in state this weekend uh, in his hometown of Troy, Alabama. They then, of course, moved his body, uh, took it to that, that, uh, that um, in Selma, in Selma, uh, in which was uh, an, an amazing, an amazing, um, an amazing display as that body was being carried across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I'm going to show you that uh, in a second. It was just 
it, it was really amazing to to see that. To see that uh, he was just there in March, uh, his last visit for the Selma Jubilee. Uh, he was just there, and um, um, it was um, a sight to behold. The rose petals that were uh, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, those rose petals represented the blood that was shed um, there. Uh, it took place, of course, during Bloody Sunday. Uh, it was, uh, it, you know, it, it, it was a moment. Uh, it, it, it was a moment uh, to watch. Uh, behold, uh, as uh, the transport there, you can go to the video, please. This is what it looked like. Um, his body was at Brown Chapel, uh, and they put him on that, um, on that carriage right there and um, horse-drawn carriage as they went across the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the final time for Congressman uh, John Lewis. Uh, coverage took place all this weekend, quite emotional for the people in Selma. It was amazing there to watch those black state troopers because on that day in Bloody Sunday, 1965, when they crossed that bridge, it was white state troopers uh, who beat uh, Congressman Lewis, almost killed him, fractured his skull, and, and so many others. And so uh, it was just uh, an, an amazing sight to see this weekend. Um, folks, uh, what you may not know about Jane Elliott, Jane Elliott, um, she actually launched her initiative, her anti-racist initiative, the day after Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Uh, she has been in the trenches uh, for a very long time uh, fighting uh, these battles, really, really being having open and honest conversations with white Americans when it comes to the issue uh, of race. And so we, we're looking forward to our conversation uh, with her. We're trying to get her on um, uh, right now. Um, but over the last, over the week, we've actually been showing you, we've been showing you uh, the, um, the conversation she and I had at the University of Michigan just three years ago. Uh, we had an absolute blast, an absolute blast uh, with that conversation. Uh, it was, uh, it was a quite interesting. Uh, man, y'all clearly uh, have been enjoying it because uh, the views uh, have been absolutely uh, fabulous. Uh, folks have been watching it. Folks have been commenting. Uh, folks have been, uh, I mean, uh, seeing it on all the different platforms. Uh, just going to play some of that video while we uh, wait to, uh, to actually get her on the phone. And her family. <laughs> and her family. Damn, Similarly, you black. I'm black, I'm black. You black. <laughs> I might as well be. <laughs> Welcome to the family. <laughs> Isn't everybody black? The first person, the first modern human being that evolved on this earth was a black woman. And we're all descendants of that black woman. Now, if you don't... If you don't learn anything else in here today, and if you don't remember anything else, you remember this. There's only one race. There is no black race. There. Let me show you something. Well, every person in this room who thinks he or she is a member of the white race, please stand. They're scared as hell. <laughs> That's it, folks. There's only one race, and we all came from a black female, so there's only one race, and it's the black race. Forget all the rest of this nonsense. This has gone on... This has gone on long enough. If we've had enough. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Sorry Here. about that. <laughs> Told y'all we were ready to go. Told you it was going to be a bad day. Go ahead. Go ahead with your introduction. Hi. I want to put a, put a finer point on Roland Martin's work as well. And this is serious work. He's written books about faith, 
he's a civil rights activist, he's a human rights activist, and likewise, he receives death threats. Uh, trolls uh, to his email accounts, his, his website accounts. Folks who do righteous work are a threat to our society. I, I will make, I, I will make, I, I do have to, so I will make one correction. Uh, I am, I do not consider myself to be uh, a civil rights activist. I am a journalist. But as a journalist, I am a journalist in the pursuit uh, of truth and justice. Uh, and so when you look at the work, so whether you talk about Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells Barnett, when you talk about Robert Abbott, uh, Ethel Payne, those, all these individuals who work within the black press. And I make that distinction because it's important. Mm -hmm. Because I've worked in mainstream media, I've worked in black press. The reason black press, that's critically important, because that's where you've seen uh, the most truth. Black press has forced mainstream media to do its job when it comes to these issues. Uh, and so what, so what often happens is, when we're trying to talk about these issues, what, what happens is when you go into a mainstream environment, uh, the, even the phrase mainstream actually means white. Because they'll say, oh, black media, Latino media, mainstream. I went, well, if that's black, that's Latino, that got to be white. <laughs> and so then the expectation, because seriously, this actually happened in 2007, to, the, in, in, to understand why you, what we're going to talk about, why you experience this, because you have to understand the role of media. Anytime across the world there is a coup anywhere in the world, they get control of the guns first, media second. They get control of the media before the banks. Think about that. Control of media before the money. So you understand the power of media. When I was at CNN in 2007, I did a pilot for a show and I got Senator Barack Obama to agree to come on the pilot, which means it, would never, it was never going to air after he announced he was running for president. During the conversation, I literally I was talking about health care, and I mentioned the word, I said, man, that hurt a brother when I had to file for bankruptcy because of health care costs. Ken Jouts, executive vice president for CNN at the time over HLN, we were meeting. This is literally what he said. He said, uh, uh, be careful using the word brother because we don't want to scare off white viewers. Then he said, I also showed this to my wife, she agreed. I was like, ooh, the white wife agreed. <laughs> now think about that. I'm talking to a black United States senator. I'm using vernacular, man, that really hurt a brother. Natural. Now Larry. All right, folks, uh, we're almost there. We, uh, we had some technical issues there. Uh, and so, uh, all right, Jane Elliott, are you there? Yes. Oh, we got you. Glad to see you. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> Good for you. I'd like to see you, but I can't. I'm I'm sure I know what you look like. Yeah, yeah well, we uh yeah, we have with FaceTime, we run it through our system and so unfortunately you can't see me, but but the most important thing, the audience can see you, they can hear you. Uh let's just let's just get with it. Um we've been talking about obviously the loss of Congressman John Lewis, and I was telling people, you started this work the day after the assassination of Dr. King. Yes. Why? What was that? What, why did you say, I have to commit myself to this? Because I was teaching third graders in all white, all Christian Riceville, Iowa. And Martin Luther King Jr. had been one of our heroes of the month in February, along with George Washington, who owned slaves, bought and sold people for money. Uh, and incidentally, never told a lie. We can't say that about our present president. 
uh, Abraham Lincoln, who obviously was our first black president since he was part black, part white, and part Cherokee Indian. Davy, and he refused to free the slaves until he absolutely had to. Davy Crockett was one of our heroes of the month in February, and he was killed while, it, while he was killing Texans while we tried to take over me part of Mexico. So those were really unfortunate heroes because I was teaching racism and didn't realize it. But because he had been one of our heroes of the month in February, when I found out that he was dead, when I came into my house that night with the teepee that my previous year's third graders had made, we were going to put up in the classroom the next day. My, my sister called and said, better turn on your television. Why? Because they shot him. I said, who did we shoot this time? And she said, Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. And for a minute, the world stopped spinning. And I can't talk about it without getting sick to my stomach. I have a reaction, a physical reaction to that sentence every time I say it, because he offered hope to all of us, not just to black people, but to all of us, to rid ourselves of the idiocy of treating people positively or negatively on the basis of a chemical in their skin, and was absolutely furious. Our lesson plan the next day was to learn the Sioux Indian prayer that says, oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. And I decided at that moment that the next morning, I was going to teach them that prayer and I was going to arrange to have it answered for them because I decided that I was going to allow some allow my students to walk in the shoes of a child of color in this country for a day. I was going to separate my kids according to the color of their eyes. And I learned that from Adolf Hitler. I didn't I didn't create this exercise. I learned it from Adolf Hitler. That's one of the ways we decided who went into the gas chamber. He decided who went into the gas chamber during the Holocaust. And the next morning, I went into my classroom. We talked about race. We talked about blacks. They knew every negative stereotype I had ever heard about blacks, and some I hadn't heard. And I finally said, how do you kids know these things are true? And they said, because my dad said so. And at that moment, I decided, okay, we're gonna find, you're going to find out that your dad's wrong. And I separated them according to the color of their eyes and treated the blue-eyed people, and I'm blue-eyed. I treated the blue-eyed people as though they were less than brown-eyed people. And I immediately found out what racism is about. The first thing I found out is I'm a racist. Little brown-eyed Debbie sitting in the front row, brown-eyed Debbie. When I said blue-eyed people aren't as smart as brown-eyed people, they aren't as clean as brown-eyed people, they aren't as civilized as brown-eyed people, that little eight-year-old looked up at me and said, how come you're the teacher here if you got them blue eyes? And I thought, there it is. There it is. She has the power now because she has the right color eyes to confront me, to criticize me, and to show me where I'm wrong. And then Alan Moss, blue-eyed Alan Moss, stood up in the back and said, it is, if she didn't have them blue eyes, she'd be the principal of the superintendent. And I thought, there it is again. This kid knows how to be a racist. Who taught him what words he should use to defend his race? It was absolutely terrifying. Whenever I see videos, I, 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 I love seeing the videos, and the look of fear on the face. You scared the hell out of white people, Jane. I know I do <laughs> I really do, especially adult white males. They are absolute. But, but hey, we start out scared now because we so, and number one, I don't like to use the word white. I would prefer to use melanemic because if you don't have enough. Say, say, say body, it again. Mel, mel what? Melanemic. If, if melanemic. It is a, Got it. Melanemic. Because if you don't have enough iron in your body, you are anemic. If you don't have enough melanin in your skin to give your skin some color, you're melanemic. Now, that's not a scientific term, but it will be. And right now, the, the demographics of this country say that within 30 years, white people, so-called white people, pale faces, will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. And that frightens melanemic people literally to death in some cases.
And when when you when when, when talking to melanemic folks, um, <laughs> it is it is amazing. Well, it's not amazing because we, we get it, but just the sheer number of people who clearly know nothing about history. And I keep saying, it's all about history. You see Senator Tom Cotton, he is just going nuts about the 1619 Project. Uh, and they think it's just this abomination. And how dare you say this nation was born uh, on the backs of slavery and racism? No, 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 do not say that. That's not what our founding fathers were about. No, what our founding fathers were about was killing the Indians first, and they weren't even Indians. We were killing the people who who owned this land first. They didn't think they owned it, but who who occupied it. And those people came from Africa too. You need to remember that. If you if you haven't read the April twenty eighteen issue issue of the National Geographic magazine, you ought to get this magazine and read it. It will blow you away. You see these two girls? Mm -hmm. These are twins. Would you say they're biracial? Wow. Would you say they're biracial? No. Hell no, they aren't biracial. There's only one race on the face of the earth. It's a human race. Instead of calling people biracial, you call them mosaic because a mosaic is an art form that is lovely, new, beautiful, and made of many different elements. Those kids aren't biracial. There's only one race unless one of their parents came from outer space. Neither of them did. I see the pictures of them in that magazine. <laughs> when... When we begin to, because you, you, you've talked about mosaic and you talked about uh, melanemic. Uh, I love people say words don't matter, but the reality is words oh. are used as weapons in this country. Words, words are the most powerful weapon devised by humankind. We use them to destroy people and nations and ideas all day, every day. But there are some words that are extremely important. Victor Hugo said... No power on earth can stop a man with a dream or an idea whose time has come. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. We killed him. We killed him and we killed Malcolm X. We did it deliberately. And if you haven't read the book Martin and Malcolm in America, you ought to get it and read it. However, his dream isn't done. His dream, we couldn't stop his dream. It's still alive, more alive than it was when he was alive. And nobody, no power on earth is going to be able to stop the idea of one race the human race. That is an idea whose time has come, and we are going to spread it until the whole world realizes that we are all members of the same race. I have a sweatshirt on which it says, God created one race, the human race. Human beings created racism. Anything you create, you can destroy. We could destroy racism in two generations if we decided to, and we'd better decide to, because if we don't destroy it, that will destroy us. When I... When the George Floyd protest started and I saw who was coming out and I said, y'all, this thing is not going to go away. And people are like, what are you talking about? I said, these are white folk or these are melanemic folk. That, what, right. what has always scared power is when those two forces came together. And when you see what's happening in corporations, when you see what's happening, all of a sudden they start changing laws. You start having come. Oh, we're going to give 10 million. No, we're going to give 25 million. No, we got 100 million. Uh, what can we do? And now the ad agencies are releasing their diversity numbers and this company and Adidas. And now you got, uh, you got white allies and black allies in companies who are joining forces. They're saying, no, 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 what was happening to them is wrong. Y'all got to change this. These, these folks are totally freaking out. 
I don't, I don't appreciate the use of the word ally because an ally is a helper. Blacks don't need help. Blacks need to be part in a partnership. We need to be in a partnership with all of these other people to make this thing work. So not allies, partners. Well, but let's call it partnership instead of ally. Got it. Okay. There's negative. Yeah, there's a negative tone to ally as far as I'm concerned. It's a superiority, inferiority. We're going to help you up. Nonsense. Nonsense. We we started this mess. We will will be ho- helpful that blacks will partnership with us in putting a stop to it. But it's going to take all of us to do it, and we could do it if we chose to. If we were teaching, if we really teach what would would really teach what Frederick Douglass said. Frederick Douglass said. Power concedes nothing without a demand, and that's what these kids are pro- proving right now. I want those folks who are talking about it on the ne- on the news to stop saying there are people of all races, including in, in this protest. There are not people of all races. There are people, a whole lot of people of different color groups, but all the same race. We've got to start it. Stop injecting the word race into everything we talk about. The when we see this force that's moving and we're now on the 10th week since um, his murder or Reverend Jim Lawson early in the show called it his execution. And I've been operating and talking to Reverend William Barber saying that, that this is a third reconstruction moment that, that we sh- we shouldn't look at this as well, you know, we can change this, change that. No, this, this it, reconstruction means reconstructing, rebuilding, uh, not just saying, let's go to the, old normal. Let's even just junk that saying, no, here is the new pathway forward how we should be operating in this country. Because what we did was not normal. Deciding that it was all right to kill people if they don't look the way you do, that isn't normal. And that's how this whole thing started. It hasn't been 600 years ago that the Spanish Inquisition, the Torquemada and company, decided that you couldn't tell what religion a person was by looking at them, but you could tell what color they were. So because they, they couldn't tell what your religion was, they had killed a bunch of Christians. So then they decided to kill people based on the color of their skin. That's how recent it is. That's how ignorant it is. That's how ridiculous it is. That's how painful it has been. And that's why it has to stop. We're obviously living in this crazy age with a nutcase in the White House. Today, he was asked the question, will you go pay respects to Congressman John Lewis? He said no. Well, first of all, there's no shock. Um, well, but they should have said thank you to him. <laughs> you want that person in the same place that somebody as remarkable as John Lewis is, and he's getting the attention? No, he probably did that out of kindness. He probably realized that everybody would be so excited about him that they wouldn't take a look at what was what was really important. So he was trying just to protect y'all. <laughs> well, we certainly appreciate uh, uh, the orange one not swinging by. Uh, although, right. although Pence and Ben Carson, they did drive by, but that's a whole nother story. But what's so interesting in this moment? No, it's not a whole nother story. It's the same story with a different with a different ending. It's not a whole nother story. Make no mistake about that. That the fact that Ben Carson is black doesn't make him black. Mm. As they say, point. Oreo. So when you look at when you look at who Trump is speaking to, the buttons that he's pushing, when you look at all of those different things uh, that, that are happening. 
I mean, he is absolutely all about white fear. He, he it, oh, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Build this wall, they're coming. They're, they're, they are coming to take what is ours. We talked, we were on that panel in 2017, University of Michigan. Um, has it gotten worse? And do you, and, and, and how, how should a Biden, how should folks who don't like, how should they counter what he is doing? Throw him out of office. Just vote him out of office. And when Biden gets in there, stop the wall. Mr. T. Rump is going to build a wall to keep people who aren't Americans out of America. Because he doesn't know that America is everything from the northernmost point on Canada to the southernmost point on South America. Those, everybody in, in all those countries is an American. So for him to say we're going to keep those brown-skinned people out of here because they reproduce too rapidly and he's going to build a wall to keep people who aren't Americans out. This is ridiculous. It is a, it is an example of his ignorance. The man isn't stupid. You can't fix stupid, but you can fix ignorance and we need to fix his ignorance. He needs some education and he needs it badly, but he isn't the only person in this country that needs to be re-educated. Most of our educators in schools in this country need to be re-educated. They need to read the book, The Myth of Race, by Robert Wald Sussman, and they need to read Anthony Browder's Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, and they need to read Robert Reich's book, The System, Who Rigged It and How to Fix It. They need to re-educate themselves so that they teach the truth when and if we ever go back to school this year. It's time for educators to stop indoctrinating people and start educating them. So I do have to ask you this here, I've, uh, we, of course, when we, we're live stream, and so you've got some folks uh, who, who take exception to you saying Ben Carson <laughs> is not, they said Ben Carson is not black. They said that sounds like Joe Biden saying uh, if, 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 you're, uh, if you're black, you wouldn't vote for Trump. Um, how would you respond to those folks who say, well, Jane, that's not right. Just because he's a different ideology, he's still black. He is black on the outside and white on the inside, and he knows exactly how to act like a white man. You know it, and he knows it, and I know it. And that's that's how he gets where he is, and that's how he got close to Donald Trump. You know it, and I. But we don't we don't want to discuss that. But that's the way it is. When we talk about this whole idea of being honest, uh, I remember when President <laughs> Bill Clinton had his race commission or whatever, and I remember I was asked. I said, "No, nah, I said this is not going to be successful." And they said, "Why?" I said because people aren't going to be honest. I said, being honest means being hardcore. Being honest means hurting folks' feelings. And when I say hurting their feelings, meaning where you're not just, okay, hold up, let me couch it in this way. I think part of, part of the issue is that we say, I love this, always say, well, uh, let, let's have a conversation, let's have a dialogue. I don't think a lot of people really, really, really want to have that real conversation about this nation, discrimination, bigotry, race, all those things, because it forces folks to hold up huge mirrors. How then do we begin to affect change then if folk don't want to be honest? We have to tell the truth, and we haven't told the truth. We have to stop doing things that promote racism. Columbus didn't discover America. You can't discover, Thor Heyerdahl says, you can't discover a place where people are already living. They discovered it before you got there. 
the First Nations people came here from Africa. And if you think I'm lying about that, once again, there are lots and lots of places to find it. But go to this issue on the National Geographic magazine and look at this map. It shows where human beings started and how they moved from there to populate practically every landmass on the face of the earth. Do you not realize how brilliant they must have been? And they did it without any modern technology. Now, we have pretended to ourselves for about 300 years that black people aren't as smart as so-called white people. They were here first, and every one of us, if we would trace our DNA back far enough, we would find out that we are all we all have DNA from a country in Africa. We are here only because black people were brave enough to, and creative enough and intelligent enough to make those voyages. We do not talk about that in history. We do not talk about the truth about black history. We use one month for black history. That's 20 minutes a day for, thir for 20 days, about 30 minutes some days, for, for 20 days. They call that black history. If you're going to study black history, you're going to have to use nine months for an hour a day. We aren't going to do that, but that would be telling the truth. We need to realize how fantastic the people are that we have accused of being less than and how much we have lost by denying what they are and how fantastic they are. Now, is every black person a model of behavior? No, but every one of them knows more than we have allowed them to think they do. I watch what happens with adults when I do the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise with so-called adults. I watch people who are head CEOs who can't spell when they have the wrong color eyes, who can't say the words they want to say, who get mixed up and say, you know what I'm thinking. I say, no, I don't. See if you can express it now. Are you having a problem, Bluey? And immediately they become what I accuse them of being, and I can lower their IQs by treating them badly for an hour and a half. Mm. You, you don't believe it, but I've been hit by a white male, an adult white male during this exercise. I've had a knife pulled on me. They took me out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania at, late at night because the 400 teachers that I put through the exercise called the superintendent and said, if you don't get that bitch out of town, we're going to kill shoot her. People who, if you put white people for half an hour through what we do to people of color for a lifetime, you'll soon find out who has, has strength and who has character and who has neither. Wow. And is it, be, is it because of the, that test you are establishing from the jump inferiority? Absolutely. And that's what we do in the schools all the time. And, and, and I'll never forget the black woman, the teacher, educator in Des Moines, who started to cry after she came into the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. She'd been in there for a few minutes, and she said, I do it to my own kind. When one of my black boys comes into the room, I expect less of him. Huh. The first day I did that exercise, four of the students in that room were, were uh, four of the brown-eyed students were dyslexic. They hadn't been able to read when I got them. On the day they were on the top in that exercise, they read words they, I knew they couldn't read, and they spelled words I knew they couldn't spell. And at the end of the day, brown-eyed Billy came up to my desk and said, Mrs. Ellie, where's my spelling paper? I said, what do you want it for, Billy? He said, because I want to show it to my mother. She thinks I can't spell, and I can. He didn't find out until April 5th of his third grade year could he, that he could spell. And I didn't find out that he could either because he had been living down to my expectations of him, and I based my expectations of him on the kinds of things that his previous teachers said about him and his brother and his father in the Briceville Community Elementary School Teachers Lounge. We force, we put, we have expectations for children according to what our, our idiocy is, our ignorance is. And we force them to live down to our expectations of them. The children who bother us the most are the children who 
achieve better than we expected them. And then, and when that happens with students in my classroom who have been, whose previous teachers have called them, called them unable to learn or disabled reader or is one of those, and they succeed, the other teachers say, well, she lied on the tests. No, you don't have to lie on the test if you expect your children to be as fantastic as they are. We have to stop allowing other people to define the children who come into our classroom. And we have to stop defining them according to the color of their skin because that's an indication of the ignorance of the educator. In I fact, most teachers aren't educators. Most teachers teach facts and figures and get kids ready for the next grade. And I'm an educator. The word educator comes from the duck deuce, which means lead, the prefix e, which means up, the suffix ate, which means the act of, and the suffix or, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. And you can't do that by teaching the history that we teach in, this, in schools in this country, because it isn't history. It's hysteria. It is not the truth. We need to teach the truth. Do you really think that all the things that have been invented and created and all the adventures that people have had were done by white males. Hmm. Because if you do, you're probably a graduate of the schools in the United States of America. Or Trump University. Congratulations. <laughs> or, or, or some university. And they've done studies that prove that the longer you stay in school, the more bigoted you become. Because that's more years in which you are reinforced, in which you learn grades K through 12. See, I'm glad you said time. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I remember in 2000, I was watching the presidential debate uh, and it was George W. Bush, uh, Al Gore. And the, this question came up and uh, Bush's answer to the issue of how do we deal with racism was, is, it was education. And I was, I was uh, at my home in the Dallas area and I started yelling, no idiot, there are a bunch of racists with PhDs. Yeah, but... But if we would re-educate them, then they could do a better educate a better job of educating others. If you haven't read the book, The Color of Law, if you haven't read that book, indeed, you read it, and you find out what go on. I, I, I've, I've interviewed the author. Yep. Hello. Yep. Yep. Which deals with. Oh, I want to. I want to stay on this on this re-educate part because I'm reading uh, Dorothy Cotton's book. Uh, if your back's not bent. And she had this great passage in there where she talked about people who wanted to join the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They would bring them through their citizenship, edu citizen education program, and they would assess them to determine whether they need to be reprogrammed. And, and, and I've said, I've said on this show in the speeches that African-Americans need to be reprogrammed because to your point of that teacher, we, because of white supremacy, we repeat these things, we say things, oh, well, you know it's a black business, which says second class. Uh, you know how we are, which says second class. And I said, what we have to understand is that, that we have been indoctrinated into believing that we are inferior and we're not as smart as and we should be deferring to uh, whites as well. So this notion of re-educating, I've been arguing for African-Americans, has to happen as well because that has to be removed from our system and make sure it's not infecting and affecting uh, our children. The, your Africa, every African-American who doesn't, who doesn't uh, identify as white, which is, you know, take that one, that one away, Every African-American has to get Anthony Browder's book, 
Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. You have to read that and you have to have that for your children. And you have to tell them, look at all the things that blacks had before they were invaded by white people. Look at these marvelous things that they've done. Realize that Egypt is a country in Africa, but we have moved it into the Middle East so that we don't have to admit that all those marvelous things that we got from Egypt came from black people. You have to read that book, and children have to read that book. Children have to hear that book. Children also have to see this book, The Color of Man. Mm. Every kid should see this book because it all the pictures of beautiful children in this book, and it tells where color came from and why we ought to stop identifying as either, as white. It makes no sense. And they ought to look at the National Geographic magazine and see these pictures, see all these different colored people. Each of them has a color on the Pantone color wheel. These are all the pictures of colors of human beings. None of these people is this color because people do not come in this color. We've got to wipe out the idea of skin color having any relevance whatsoever to our value as human beings. When this idea of re-educating, I think, Jane, for so many people, that that they run from that because it's like, so what are you saying, I'm dumb? No. What I'm saying is, if you don't know, you don't know. That's right, but you can't teach what you don't know. Right. And if, if teachers don't know what I just said, they ought not to be teaching. They ought to go into another line of work. For instance, look at this map. You see this map? Are you familiar with this map? See Greenland hanging down here like a great big red plum? Mm -hmm. And see poor little South America here? According to the legend at the bottom of most of these Mercator maps, South America is actually nine times larger than Greenland. Now, that's a fact. Does this map show it? Nope. But this is the map that we use throughout the schools in the United States of America. It's time to stop doing that. It's time to get a different map. There's a better way. This is the Peters projection map. Look at Greenland on this map. Look at poor little Greenland up here. See here? See how tiny that is? Mm. See, Donald, Donald Trump wanted to buy Greenland because he thought it was this big. <laughs> Greenland is only Greenland is only this big. Is this an important fact? I think this is an extremely important fact. And I think everybody should send to capital O, capital D, capital T, maps.com and order copies of the Peters projection map and insist that they be shown in the schools, in every school when they open up this fall, because kids have a right to see the truth instead of the lie. So, again, as, as we unpack that, that simple map, that simple map you just laid out, subconsciously says, oh, they're smaller, they're less than. But then also when you... Go ahead. All the countries in the western, in the northern hemisphere are larger than the countries in the southern hemisphere on this map. On this map, the northern hemisphere takes up two-thirds of the map. So you can't even use the word hemi, the prefix hemi, which means half. You can't call it a hemisphere if you're going to use this map. You see, we teach against our teaching all the time. When we talk to that particular point there, um, when we talk about, like, for instance, it's just stunning to me. When, well, it's not stunning, but when you talk to folks and they go, yeah, that country Africa, and I just sit there and I'm like... 
show you something about that country Africa. Look at here. That country Africa is that continent Africa. And according to this, you could put the United States, Argentina, India, Europe, and China in that continent Africa. That's how big that continent is. The what we're talking about centuries of of this dominating view and and I'm coming going with the Tom Cotton what, what what scares folks like him which is why he doesn't want that 1619 curriculum because they he doesn't want uh, those white children in Arkansas and other uh, uh, states to actually realize the difference between history and his story. Because That's right. this mythology that they have created, they don't want it to be torn down because, oh my God, what's going to happen if, if, if we just, if we don't revere uh, the founding fathers? We, we, we don't want to know about, that's, that's why Sally Hemings was his mistress. No, Sally Hemings was his slave who he raped uh, in order to have to, I'm like, no, let's not you know play games here, and and that that's what it is. Their deal is like you are about Jane. They're saying Jane, you are trying to screw this whole thing up that we set up. You have lost your mind. You and the rest of these people. <laughs> that's okay. People people have accused me of that for years. Somebody said to me. Several people have said to me recently, "How is this being socially distanced for you? How is that?" And I say, "Well, nothing new. I've been socially distanced ever since I did the blue eyed brown eyed exercise fifty two years ago." Don't tell me that being socially distanced is so bad. I understand that. I've experienced that. It's not a bad way to be. Sometimes, if your society is insane, you're better off if you're away from it. <laughs> I, 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 now, look, there are some black people out here who don't want to wear masks, who act a fool. But, Jane, I got to tell you, th 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 look, these folks are, just, are losing their damn mind. Tell them to get this mask. You see this mask? What does it say? <laughs> get over it. <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> Tell them to order this mask. Somebody sent it to me. I think this is the ideal mask for all of us to wear. Get over it, people. Get over the idea that you are something special because, you have, because you're melanemic. Get over the idea that nobody knows as much as you do because you chose. I'll never forget the woman who said to me, white liberal woman, I don't dislike blacks. When I see one, I just think, there but for the grace of God go I. And then I attacked her. She thinks God woke up one morning and decided to make something beautiful, and God made her. I'll bet she'll never say that again. She said, you don't understand. I said, I understand exactly what you're saying. You're saying that God loves you because he must love you because he made you white. Well, number one, God's a spirit and has neither gender nor color, so it's not a he. Number two, God didn't make you white. You are white because some black people left Africa 300,000 years ago and moved to populate every landmass on the face of the earth. And you are a faded black person. Get used to it. She didn't <laughs> speak to me after that, and I don't suppose she ever will again. A faded black person. Oh, yeah, you you messed her up. So, Jane, we have this, sec we have this segment of my show called Crazy Ass White People. And so all these videos of these Karens and Chads who are who are just losing their mind, calling the cops on folks. Jane, first of all, we got so many now. I mean, it, I, I, we got to, like, we, we can't play all of them because the, it's like, it's, it's you know, uh, you're accosting a, UP, a brother who worked at UPS 
who works at FedEx. You the, the woman the other day, the guy's just delivering food, and she's like, no, I know everybody in my building. I don't know who you are. I mean, that's the crazy right. stuff that we're seeing. Right. <laughs> Jane, just The guy who right. reads your meter walks across the lawn in Waterloo, Iowa, and the police are called. The, uh, the man who asks a white woman to leash her dog so that he can look at the birds and the flowers calls the police, and the police come and demand to know what he is doing to bother that poor woman who is accusing him of attacking her. This kind of thing happens all the time, and it ought to be stopped, and it's an indication of the ignorance of people who think that skin color is indicative of in a lack of intelligence and a lack of self-worth. It's time to give it up. Well, and, and see, these black people, Jane, are being real patient with some of these people, because I'll be honest with you. I'll be cussing some folk out constantly if you ask it basically for my papers, like this is South African apartheid. See, my heroes are black women when you talk about being patient. My heroes, and I'm not saying this to you because of who you are or what you are. I'm saying this to you because this is what I believe. Mm -hmm. For 300 years in this country, they have been patient. And they have watched us, and they have waited on us, and they have nursed our children, and they have raised our children, and they have done the hard work, and they have still saying, God will get us out of this. God will take care of this. All right. We have even turned God into an old white man with a long gray beard that looks like Charlton Heston playing Moses. And we've made Jesus, the baby Jesus, look like the little Pillsbury Doughboy. Now, that's a lot of power if you can change the color of God and Jesus. And that's what we have done in order to perpetuate the myth of race. And it isn't a myth. It's a lie. A myth is something that you make up to explain the a physical phenomenon that you don't understand. A lie is something you make up to justify the ugly things that you're doing and saying and thinking and being. The lie of race has to be recognized and it has to be stopped. It is killing this country. I got a phone call today from a reporter who wanted to ask me about the protests in Portland. And he said there are some black folks who say that what these white uh, folks in Portland are doing is just too much, this get away from the moment. And I said to him, I said, we need some white folks who are checking other white folks. Reverend Jim Lawson, he said, we he said, just like Black Lives Matter, he said, we need to see white people, he said, white men, he said, protesting homelessness or wage discrimination, things along those lines. And so when we when we talk about uh, you know, you know, moving forward, how do we create more Jane Elliott's, more Tim Wise's? you know, in these cities. Because, like, people, we talk about race. I tell groups of white people, I was like, don't talk to me. I said, I need y'all talking to each other. Because y'all having conversations together that are different from the ones you having with me. I think we said we have to send them all to Frederick Douglass. Just Google Frederick Douglass and the Frederick Douglass quotes. He said, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. These young people believe that. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. He said, where justice is denied, that's in the United States. Where poverty is enforced, that's in the United States. Where ignorance prevails, that's in the United States. And where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, Neither persons nor property will be safe. We had better straighten this thing out and straighten it out now. We have 30 years to get this thing right, to do it and to do it right. 
because here's something else white folks don't realize. Only 25% of the people on the face of the earth classify as white. We have been outnumbered for centuries, and we are outnumbered more now than ever before. We better get our act together. Jane, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I, I, I'm working on a book, um, and I talked about this here, and I, and I, and I basically call it White Fear. Uh, and I remember in 2009, Obama elected president, Obama elected president, and, and there was a study that was done. I think it was Pew, one of them. And the question was asked, are you optimistic about the future of America for your children? Every group, majority said yes. White America, only one less than the majority. September 2016, study was dropped. Are you optimistic about the future of America economically for the next 10 years? Black people, lowest wealth, highest optimism. Latinos, second lowest wealth, second highest optimism. White Americans, highest wealth, lowest optimism. And I kept telling people, I said, y'all better get ready. I said, we, I, I said, 2009, I said, we are living in the, in the is age, what I call white minority resistance. I said, now, even though they're not the minority, I said, we are about to see this thing develop and then all of a sudden uh, begin to pick up. And that's what, to your point, here we are 23 years away from America becoming a nation majority of people of color. And you got folks who are going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? That means we don't have power, so, yeah. so we're not going to be in control. Yeah. Okay, who's going to have the money? And so there's like, well, okay, who's going to control the textbooks? Okay, who? And that's why the Mitch McConnell's of the world are appointing these 35 and 45-year-old largely white males, far right, to be on the federal bench for the next 30, 40, and 50 years because they, their deal is we want to control this for as long as we can, and they want to use it through the court system. I did a program with Angela Davis at the University of Houston a, a year or so ago. And that audience, there are 1,500 people in the audience, half of them were black. And this, young, this one white woman stood up and said, well, if they get power, and I knew who she was talking about, aren't they going to want to get even with us? I said, that's your major fear, isn't it? That black people are going to get even. She said, yes, I, I think they will. I said, let's find out. Well, every person in this audience who considers him or her, herself a member of the black race and who wants to get even with all white folks, please stand up. Three young black males stood up. The rest of them just looked at him like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and I said to the woman, see, they don't want to get even with all of us. Do you feel better? Well, yeah, does that make you more comfortable? Yeah, I said, but now let's be honest about this. Well, every black person in this room who wants to get even with one or two white people, please stand up. Every one of them jumped up. I <laughs> fighting one another. I tell you, it was the best moment of my life. And I said, now how do you feel? She said, I don't know. I said, here's what you need to know. If you want to be treated fairly in the future, treat people fairly today. Behave in such a way that you aren't one of the one or two they want to get even with. Does that make sense to you? And the blacks were all cheering, and she's just like, I don't know. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to treat people fairly. But if she wants to live comfortably in the future, she's going to have to learn that. Oh, my God. So when you said that, I, I, Pat Buchanan literally wrote that in one of his crazy columns. He's, he's like, you know, are they going to do to us what we did to them? And I'm going, well, what, yeah. I'm like, what you should be saying is, why did we do that to them? And what should we be doing to apologize uh, and also... Uh, men that repair. Mitch Landrew, in his book, uh, dealing with taking out the Confederate statues, he he literally wrote. He said, "White people, I've known black people all my life. Trust me, they're not us. They're not going to do to us what we did to them." Well, and when I when I, when I do the exercise with a group, 
when the blue and I I don't re, I don't reverse it with adults, but I do it with children. And the blue-eyed people are on the bottom the first time every time. And the day, and they say in the boys' restroom, we're going to get even with Brownie when, when it's our turn. And the day they're on the top, the blue-eyed people were much are much less vicious to the brown-eyed people than the brown-eyed people were to them. And I say to them when we do the debriefing and the third day, you blue-eyed kids said you were going to get even with the brown-eyed kids. You didn't do it. Why didn't you do it? And every year I get the same answer because I found out how it feels to be treated that way. And I didn't want to make anybody feel the way I felt when I was on the bottom. I think that our only hope is that's what black people feel. They know how it feels. They know the disruption that it causes in a society. And they don't, they know they don't want to have that blamed onto them. But also black people, the reality is black folks are forgiving. I mean, I mean, we have been, we have been, Train condition. I mean, we 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 forgive. We. I mean, I, look after the, the Charleston. You know, uh, Mother Emanuel, nine black people being killed. I remember watching cable news. They kept saying, "Oh my goodness." I mean, do you believe this? All the talk about forgiveness and compassion. And I'm sitting there going, "I'm like, y'all white folks still mad about 9/11?" You know. And so this society has always said to African Americans, "Oh, you must forgive and move on. You must you must not hold grudges and whatever." And so that, 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 that's they a forgive. They forgive, but they don't forget. Say it again. They forgive, but they don't forget. And that's what bothers white folks. It's one thing to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. It's another thing for people to forget the ugly things you've said and done and helped to happen and the people you have elected in order to keep you in your place. We just had a white, uh, this lawyer shoot and kill the husband of a Latina federal judge, uh, killed her son. This guy hated women. Um, he, 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 he just, he could not stand. He killed another lawyer in, um, in, um, um, uh, in California. Jane, right now you have groups who are specifically targeting white men who are saying, you are aggrieved that what is happening, they are trying to destroy you. They're cutting you out. They're taking everything from you. Um, how do we ensure or how do we combat this specific targeting of young white men uh, that uh, to ensure that 20, 30 years from now, all of a sudden they, they're not turning into you know, mentally where these militia people are and where these neo-Nazis are and stuff. That thing is happening, and I, I see it in the writings, and, oh, my goodness, as a white man, I can't speak up. Oh, I'm, what about me? I mean, uh, I didn't do these things to people in the past. Uh, how am I? I don't have any male white privilege, things along those lines. How do you, what must this society do to combat the targeting of those fertile minds? We have to put a stop, number one, we have to put a stop to the mercenaries that are in Seattle and in Portland in the guise of federal law officers. We'd better take a look at those mercenaries and take off the, the combat stuff and look at who's under those clothes. And you're going to find out that they are not lawfully elected people. They are people who are hired by somebody who wants to have mercenaries come in and su shut down a protest. I think if we would educate in a proper way that white people would relax and so could everybody else. But as long as white people think they have to maintain their superiority, even though they don't have the intelligence to do it, but they, and, tip, and if you, if you think I'm lying about that, look at our president. 
Do you really think he has the intelligence to be in the position he's in? Oh, no. We have a lot of white people who are in positions which do not deserve the positions they're in because they don't know enough. They really, for instance, there's a book called uh, The Color of Law. It's about the laws that are made to force it, force segregation in this country. And we say it's de facto segregation. No, those laws to force segregation were written by people, lawyers, educated, so-called educated people who don't know any better. They really believe that there are three or four races and that we all want to be separated from those who don't look like us. It's a lie. Our laws are built on the law, the lies of ignorant people and people who believe the lie of several different races. We've got to get that idea out of people's heads. We've got to do it now. And even if that even if that law was repealed or removed, the effect of that law, I saw the Washington Post had a story this weekend that showed a home in Prince George's County, because of lack of investment, sells for $120,000, $130,000 less than a similar home in Montgomery County. And they said, Right there, that's a black, that's a lot, a black family typically in Prince George's County is going to get 120 to 130 thousand uh, dollars fewer dollars than that white family. Right there, you're speaking about your wealth gap. But if you if you trade with places like Walmart, which is designed deliberately to make money for the Walton family, so you you pay people less than they're worth. And you work with them for less than eight hours a day, for less than 40 hours a week, so you don't have to pay benefits. So they can't afford, they don't make enough money to buy a decent house. So they live in sub, substandard housing. And then when you decide that you're going to regentrify the neighborhood, they have to find another place to live so that you can sell that property to some middle class people who can afford to live in a nicer home. This is all about how to make money off the backs of black people, which we have been doing for the 400 years that they've been in this country. Racism is a moneymaker. Yep. It is an absolute moneymaker. A few more questions before we uh, have to end this. Uh, Y'all, uh, trust me, YouTube and Facebook and Periscope is blowing up. They're loving you, Jane. Uh, uh, not some, all of them. some, not all of them. Uh, now most of them are, and uh, 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 many of them are saying you're welcome to the cookout. So that's what. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bring potato salad. I do that well. <laughs> so uh, uh, no raisins in that, right, Jane? Oh, in potato salad, wash your mouth out. <laughs> Heavens, no. <laughs> I just want to go ahead and mess with you on that potato one. Potato salad. I never heard anything so foolish. <laughs> Let's talk about um, uh, statues. Um, first, should the Edmund Pettus Bridge be renamed named after John Lewis? Should these Confederate statues come down? Should the Christopher Columbus statues come down? Well, you see, I don't mind having the statues up because pigeons crap on them. <laughs> so I really don't know. That's not, that's not a big problem for me. And kids throw things at them, and, and it's a good thing to lean on when you're tired after you've been running. So I think that we need to tell the truth about the people who are represented by those statues, and then people will do what the pigeons do, because we'll realize that those are the wrong statues to be put up anywhere. But if they're up there, what might as well deface them if they're going to if we're going to in, be insisting that you honor those people who did dishonorable acts, then we need to make those statues something of um, an object of ridicule. Instead of tearing them down, it takes a lot of money to tear those statues down, then you gotta have to find a place for them. Use them for, I don't know, target practice, something interesting. <laughs> Use them for something that, hey, you know, we're doing, we're going about this the wrong way. When you tear away people's statues, you tear away their self-image. 
So let them see what your self-image looks like when it isn't so pretty anymore. This is ridiculous. Arguing over those statues is taking your attention off what is happening in this country to people of color. It's taking your attention off the fact that the Navajo Nation is dying of COVID-19, which should be called Trump virus. Let's talk about that, shall we? Let's talk about what is happening to the Navajo Nation who were here long before we pale faces got here. They don't have anything but dirt floors and they have no electricity and no running water and they're dying. And they're 100 miles from a hospital. Why? Because after all, mm -hmm. they aren't important. Uh, Fox News scared to call me, so is CNN. Uh, I barely get called by MSNBC. Why are these mainstream networks scared of you, Jane? <laughs> Why are they? Because if I'm right, they're wrong. They're, they're afraid of me the same reason that 55 teachers in the Riceville school system were afraid of me and absolutely hated me because I taught that you don't have to be white to be right. I disagree with the rightness of whiteness. And I taught that every person on this earth is my 30th to 50th cousin. And I get really angry when some of my pale faced cousins abuse some of my darker skin cousins. It makes me really, really angry because it isn't about skin color. It's about ignorance. And as long as we perpetuate the ignorance of several different races, we will have this problem. You want to get rid of racism, get rid of the idea of several different races. Then you have to say, we're all the same race. What's your problem, cool? How would you describe Betsy DeVos? Fool. Damn fool. Destructive damn fool. Let's say Joe Biden becomes president. Um... If he said, Jane, I would love for you to work with my Department of Education, would you do it? Heavens no. I'd say, Joe, you're out of your mind. I'm 10 years older than you are. Get real. <laughs> but you would so but 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 you but you would you would have value. Well, I would have value until I walked into that office and looked at it and thought, why am I here? There are young people of all colors and all kinds who could do this job better than an old short fat white woman good. Why in the world would I take that job knowing that I am not qualified for it? If I wanted to be president, now that's a, a job I'd take because we have proof that you don't have to be qualified to get that one. <laughs> Jane, you're 86, correct? Well, I'm 86, but I'm not correct. But yeah, I'm 86. <laughs> no, 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 you are correct. You're very correct. How are you... <laughs> how, how, are you how, how are you creating... Uh, the 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 army of Jane Elliott's. I'm not creating an army of Jane Elliott. What I want to do is get every person that hears my voice to believe that there's only one race and they don't have to believe the lies that they've been taught so far and that they're willing to go to my website, download this printed learning uh, materials. The first is a set of typical statements that white folks make that think they aren't racist. The second is a set of clarifications of those, those remarks. The third is a set of commitments to combat racism. And the fourth is a bibliography. I want them to go through that printed language, those printed learning materials. I want them to learn how not to talk by doing the, the uh, commitments, the clarifications of the typical statements, and then pick out one of those commitments 
put the de- put the date beside it, decide to do it for a month, and do that until you've gone through all 18 of those. We can change the level of racism in this country if we change one individual at a time. Now somebody's going to say racism is a societal problem. Yeah, I know that. But societies are made up of individuals. And if we change enough individuals, we can turn this thing around. And we have to. But I, but we I have to do that. But, I, but the reason I asked that question, uh, Marva Collins, Marva Collins uh, taught a number of folks her Socratic teaching method. And what you have been able to accomplish, I mean, are there others who are picking up that mantle who are saying, um, you know, we want to continue continue your work? Uh, and then that thing begins to spread. Because, again, the reason I use Army is because, look, you're one person. You're one person. And I think there is tremendous value uh, of folks who learn from you, study underneath you, and then who says, you know what, I want to run this race too. I've tried to teach people how to do this, and I've, I've succeeded with maybe three out of the 25 that I've tried to teach. Because wow. invariably, when you, when you say, now it's your turn, now you do this, and they say, you know, five minutes into it, they say, I can't be that mean. And I say, what do you mean you can't be that mean? You see this happen on the street all the time. You act this way all the time. This is what you do on a regular basis. But when you have to do it publicly, you can't be that mean? Let me tell you, we white folks know how to be that mean. We know how to run this exercise. We know exactly how to run this exercise because we run it based on skin color all day, every day. And any fool educator who says, I don't know how to do that, needs to have a bit, needs to have, some, have somebody come in and videotape her during a school day and then show it to her. And she'll say to herself and probably to that person, oh, my God, I did what Jane Elliott does. And I did it based on skin color. Don't tell me you don't know how to do it because you do, white folks. You've been doing it for 300 years and you're still doing it. You know it and I know it. But the difference is I admit it and live with it and learn from it and teach it. I'd love to have a dozen people come to my house this summer and go to my little church next day that I've turned into a guest house, and I'll teach them how to do this exercise, and I'll charge them for doing it, and then I'll expect them to do it. There's a woman in the Netherlands. Her name is Shida Berman. I taught her and the person she works with and several other people do the exercise, and she's doing it with police departments in Netherlands and having terrific success with it because Mm. once you let a white person find out how it feels to be under the heel of somebody else because of a difference in that person, physical characteristic over which we have no control. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's, my God, I didn't know. And I'll never forget the black man in London, uh, no, in uh, Scotland, who uh, um, doesn't matter, Scotland. And he was, uh, he, was, he was black, so he was already had brown eyes. His wife was blue-eyed and sitting in the middle. And she had a little girl, a little tiny child, was crying. And I said, why don't you take that child? And he said, she's the mother. That's her job. That's the way blue-eyed people are. And I thought, well, you miserable SOB. And after it was over, he said, it's a system. It's a system. I thought it just happened. I thought it was natural. I said, no, it's not natural. We teach people to be idiotic. It is a system. Get a, get a clue. This is a system that is hard on all of us. But you see, we white folks think it doesn't hurt us any. It does hurt us. It limits our associations. It limits our loves. You need to realize that you, people, we, ha- we have had laws against miscegenation in this country for years. You can't have a black person and a white person married. People, you can't cross a cat with a dog and get a dad or a cog because they're different species. You can cross people of different color groups and get brilliant 
wonderful, beautiful children. We do it all the time. Get over it. We are all members of the same race. There is no such thing as a biracial child or a multiracial group unless some of them are from another planet. Two questions. First question, two questions left. First question. Have you ever done this exercise with a group of white preachers? <laughs> I've had white preachers in the exercise, but I've never done it with a group of them because, oh my, they would pray hard. <laughs> and they'd find out, as we often find out, that prayer didn't change it. White, pre white preachers have been praying to put an end to this for years. What they haven't done is teach and first believe that there's only one race, believe that Jesus probably was an Ethiopian Jew, which made him black, believe that Mary did not look like a skinny Marilyn Monroe, and believe that Jesus didn't look like the little Pillsbury Doughboy. We've got to start teaching the truth in the churches. We don't dare do that because we'll, move a, we'll lose a whole lot of our parishioners. Last, Those white folks want mm -hmm. to believe that, that lie that we teach in the schools and the churches in this country. Last question. If a uh, young person, if a man or a woman anywhere in the world stumbles across uh, one of your videos 50 years from now, 100 years from now, what do you want that person to know about Jane Elliott? Oh, I, the only thing that's important about Jane Elliott, make no mistake about this, is I had a father who was totally moral and totally honest, totally honest and moral, and said, you know the difference between right and wrong? Now do the right thing, God damn it. And he also said, a man is judged by the company. He keeps in the best of companies, none too good. We would be furious about our so-called president who lives in the president's residence now. He said, there's a right and a wrong, do the right thing. That's all. I believe that what I'm doing is the right thing. And I believe 50 years from now, what I'm doing will be a joke because everybody will have stopped believing in the rightness of whiteness. And they'll say, well, why are they, why is anybody making a fuss over that? What was she talking about? That stuff doesn't happen anymore because hopefully in 50 years, it won't happen anymore. Hopefully we will raise a, a group of people starting this fall as school ever starts where teachers have educated them to the fact that we're all members of the same race. We are all equally human. I know I chased you down like a bill collector to get you on the show. I appreciate you uh, answering the email. Uh, and I'm, it has not because you're even, even here right now. Uh, that uh, The opportunity to meet you three years ago at the University of Michigan was amazing. Uh, and I've done a lot of keynote speeches and I've done panels. That by far uh, is a top three uh, discussion. Uh, I just had an absolute joy being with you at the University of Michigan in 2017. And I appreciate you uh, coming on the show uh, tonight. Well, thank you. <laughs> Angela Davis, after she saw me attack the little children, all the children in the University of Houston, said, Jane, we could go on the road together. I said, tell me when I'll go. <laughs> well, look, I'll be happy to go on the road with you as well once this coronavirus stuff is gone. These dumbasses know how to put masks on. <laughs> and be sure they get one of these. That's right. Get over it. Get one of these. <laughs> get over it. Jane Elliott, it's a pleasure. You take care. Be Thank safe. Thank you. Thank you. You too. All right, folks. Thank you so very much. All of you who have watched uh, this conversation with Jane Elliott, our coverage of Con with Congressman John Lewis, fascinating conversation. Uh, we look forward to uh, restreaming this. Uh, again, this is why we do what we do, folks, here. You're not going to hear that conversation mainstream media.
not for a little more than an hour. That's why we want you to support what we do at Roland Martin Unfiltered. More than 4,000 of y'all are on YouTube right now. Y'all can join our Bring the Funk fan club right there on YouTube. Folks, Cash App, uh, which is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal.me forward slash RMartinUnfiltered. Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. Of course, you can send a money order to New Vision Media, NU Vision Media, Inc., 1625 K Street Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. Uh, please uh, uh, support what we do. We have uh, uh, a little, little more than 10,000 uh, members about Bring the Funk Fan Club. Our goal is to have 20,000 by the end of the year, so we have about 8,800. Uh, our goal is to get uh, 8,800 more people to give at least 50 bucks each. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day to support what we do for us to be able to bring you these type of conversations that you're not getting anywhere else. It ain't happening on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, CNN. It's not happening on any of these places. That's why we are creating this platform, because we want to do more. Today, not a single black network broadcast the U.S. Capitol um, uh, event dealing with Congressman John Lewis. We want to be able to build this platform and grow this to a digital network where we are giving you live coverage, coverage of events like that, live coverage of panels that involve uh, Jane Elliott and others, and be able to do more shows like this, but we need your support to actually make that happen. So please support us uh, by joining our Brina Funk fan club. Go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com Tell a family member, tell a friend, tell a church member we are building this for the culture this is about us being able to control the narrative and we need your support to make it happen all right folks and don't forget go to vote.org check your registration check your registration to see if you're registered oh, request your absentee ballot right now we've got to mobilize organize register request the ballot vote early and hashtag fire Trump in November. I'll see y'all tomorrow. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.